Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. Amen. It was John D. Rockefeller who, when asked how much money is enough, replied, just a little bit more. What portion is enough? What portion is enough for you? It's the most common, but maybe for you it isn't about money. Maybe it's prestige, your reputation and that of subsequent generations, or accomplishments. Maybe it's power and control, or maybe acceptance and praise. As we've learned time and time again from the scriptures, whichever of those means we're using, what we're seeking remains the same, security and satisfaction. We want to be secure in the present and in the future. And we want satisfying lives, not unlike the abundant blessing we read about in Psalm 1. The million-dollar question, then, is whatever you're using to pursue that security and satisfaction, can it provide portion enough? And if it's not working for you right now, will it if you have just a little bit more? There's nothing wrong with the desire to be secure and satisfied. In Psalm 16, as in many others, David prays for security. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This psalm doesn't appear to be about any specific single event in his life as much as it's a prayer for daily preservation. We'll consider safety in more detail when we look at Psalm 17. Because this week, studying this psalm, I noticed something else that I hadn't seen before. David is praying for preservation. He's thinking about security. But as we look through the psalm, he's clearly also found satisfaction. 
And what struck me this week was how he got both. And the answer was contentment. Specifically, contentment in God. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David is all in on trust in God. The verse is a rallying cry to contentment. A statement that acknowledges not just that God is good, but that only God is good. There is nothing David desires more or apart from God. He understands that apart from God, nothing is good. Apart from God, we will never be safe. Apart from God, nothing will ever truly satisfy And David wrote this psalm like a man who knows it. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. David looks to God for everything and God always proves enough. Verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be Shaken. One teacher said, there's no plan B in David's kind of commitment. If God does not come through for him, he is finished. How about you? Are you trying to live with a plan B? Or perhaps you've relegated God to plan B. Think about it carefully. Where in life are you insistent that you need just a little bit more? Is it acceptance, attention, or affirmation? Is it recognition, power, or accomplishments? What makes you say, I'll feel secure when I have, or with this, I'll finally be satisfied? I read another teacher this week who identified exactly the kinds of things that should be on that list for us, the kinds of things that right now, every day, Satan is using to try and convince us that there is good that can be found outside of God. Isn't that what sin is? It's looking for good outside of God and his provision and his will. This author wrote, a young woman thinks she will find love and security If she gives in to her boyfriend, what is she doing? She's looking for a good thing, namely love and security. But apart from God and his will in her life. A man indulges himself in pornography or an office romance. He's looking for a good thing, namely sexual pleasure. But he's looking for it apart from God, whose way is through marriage. A woman tells her friends the latest gossip because it makes her feel significant. What is she doing? She wants a good thing. She wants to feel like she matters. But she should feel precious because God created her in his image and Christ died to redeem her instead of finding significance in the latest juicy news. She's looking for good Apart from God, an unforgiving man craving justice, a good thing, but then he takes revenge into his own hands when God says, vengeance is mine. A greedy person who clings to possessions for security instead of taking refuge in God. The list could go on and on. 
The heart of it is that when God is your portion, you have portion enough. Everything else fools you into the lifelong pursuit of more and more. That's why it struck me so strange that David is all in on trust in God. How for him, God is portion enough. And I wondered if that portion is enough for me. Is it enough for you? One way to tell is by who you love. David writes in verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 60% of the Ten Commandments are about how we should relate to one another. Jesus told the disciples, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul told the Christians in Rome to love one another with brotherly affection. Peter wrote, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And John explained in his first epistle, love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There's no more visible way we can show that we are born of God than by our love for one another. God himself has no need of our good works or our good service. He is complete within himself. But when we do good for one another, when we love one another well, we love God through it. And we won't live this way if we're envious of one another. Believing that we need what they have if we are going to be secure and satisfied. We're not going to live this way if we are greedy or indifferent. Believing that we put our security and satisfaction at risk when we put others ahead of ourselves. David's relationships reveal the full contentment he has in God. He wants to be with God's people. They are the excellent ones, and he delights in them. Compare that to what he says in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You see, David will not seek the world's approval. He will not associate with their loves and their ways. He says no to their offers of security and satisfaction. He will not covet what they have. He will not participate in or approve of their selfish and corrupt practices. For David, God's portion is enough. And that means that God's people and not the world's are his delight. I've heard it said that being happy in God starts with saying no. Because you have to say no to the world. You can't be happy and satisfied with God and have a foot in the world. You can't, as another put it, be united into one body of the church if we do not separate ourselves from idolaters and keep ourselves from the pollution that corrupts. Kids, the Proverbs say, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer 
harm. A similar idea is show me your friends and I'll show you your future. It matters who we associate with. It matters who we choose to be around. It matters whose approval and acceptance we're trying to get. David has found everything he's looking for in God, and that makes the other good things truly good. But the world wants us to get that order wrong, those priorities wrong, and it messes everything up. That's why we need to be around people who want and have what David has, contentment in God. We need to love those people more than we love the world. And so we need to be content with God, not seeking anyone else's approval. Are we more comfortable around those who openly sin? Or do we love to be with those who share the love of Christ? Are we most at ease with other believers? Or do we relax with the values, desires, and blasphemies of unbelief? To be all in on God is to be all in on God's people. It's why David can be content with their acceptance and approval and without that of the world. So David is all in on God's perspective. Starting in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David's life had many, obviously, good things. But David's life was also filled with adversity. Only a few psalms ago, we were considering the rebellion his own son led against his kingship. On another occasion, it was Saul in murderous pursuit. But when David considers his life, he summarizes it. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Because David has found contentment in God, David has found contentment in life, whatever that life contains. He knows the measuring stick of a quality life, and it's not what the world thinks makes a life happy. It's whether or not that life is in God. David is not discontent with life in God. He's not bored by life in God. Think about the lives of many you know in the world. Could you say that of them? Aren't people all around us filled with with discontent? Aren't they bored with the lives that they have? Their expectations, in contrast to the reality of life, make them frustrated. What would change if you found full contentment in God? Now, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy the good gifts God gives us. Our contentment in God is what makes those gifts good. It's what makes us able to have real joy through them. Many of you have read Joe Rigney's great book on the subject, The Things of Earth. One of the ways we enjoy God is by enjoying him through the good gifts he's given, as Stephen prayed and led us in prayer. 
I heard the illustration used of a boy's response to his Christmas gift. Imagine that you're the dad and you give your son the airsoft gun that he's always wanted. And and what you expect is that he's going to jump up and down and say yes and be excited and then run off to play with it. After all, it's, it's what he's always wanted. And the illustration said, imagine instead that he goes all goody two shoes on you. And he opens the gun and he sees it and he sets it aside and says, you know, Father, this is a really nice gift, but what I want most is you. And then he ignores the airsoft gun and sits quietly next to you. That's not what you wanted when you gave him the gift. You wanted to see him jump up and down and be all excited. You wanted him to enjoy the gift and go play with it because you love him. The gift is an extension of your love. That's how it is with God. His gifts are an extension of his love. He wants us to enjoy the good gifts. And in so doing, we praise the good giver. It's a mild tragedy of modern Christianity. How many believers walk around and when God gives us something good, they, they feel guilty or they, or they wait for the other shoe to drop. It can't be that God wants me to enjoy something or be happy. He's a good father. He wants us to enjoy the gifts that he gives. And that's why I think, though David started by looking for security, preserve me, O God, and he was content with God as his portion, he ends up finding full satisfaction as well. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When God is portion enough, life isn't merely secure. It's fully satisfying. These are a kind of security and satisfaction that cannot be found only in the things of earth. They're found in God. They're found in the personal knowledge of God in living in his presence. There's no other portion that is enough. Now, an astute reader could read the words of Psalm 16 and still have some rooms for doubt. After all, Despite David saying these things, we know there are times when David did lose hold of that contentment in God. When David did pursue security and satisfaction through other means. And the promises here in which David has such confidence, this expectation that God would not abandon him to the grave. Were those promises ever fulfilled in David's life? To answer these objections, we need the New Testament. And that's where we understand that David's confidence in these promises wasn't because of David. And our confidence shouldn't be either. It's because of Christ. Peter and Paul both preached from this psalm. And the subject of both of those sermons was the resurrection Because in his own life, David could not prevent his body from decaying in the grave. But the grave could not hold 
Christ. The resurrection secured the promises that David here is trusting by faith. David doesn't know how God would do it, but God said he would do it. And that word was portion enough for David. The saints then, the excellent ones, are the church. It's David and the faithful in Israel. It's us, the people gathered by the Spirit, buried and raised with Christ and with God himself as our portion. And that is enough. We're still filled with weakness, like David. We're still filled with sin, like David. We, we have to endure cross-bearing and misery. Nevertheless, we have the forgiveness of sin. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit and a sure hope of eternal life. And so we have enough. I want you to think about all the things you could have. Wealth. The picture-perfect family. Power and influence. Accomplishments and adventures. Those can be good things. They can be blessings from God. But what do you believe is the greatest blessing God could ever give you? Isn't it himself? So let me close with this. If I got punched in the gut this week preparing, you should have to hear it too. If God gave you health, but didn't give you himself, would you be satisfied? If God gave you a nice home, nice vacations, and plenty of money, but did not give you himself, would you be satisfied? If you went to heaven and the streets were solid gold, the air was clean and bright, there was no more sin, everyone got along without fighting and arguing or conflict. But Jesus was not there. Would you be satisfied? David knew the greatest blessing God can give us is himself. And if we do not have God, then no other gift he gives means anything. But if we have God, our portion is enough. 